Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Robert Romanishan to the podcast. Dr. Romanishan is an emeritus professor of psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute and an internationally recognized scholar in depth psychology. He's a prolific author, has published many books, chapters and journal articles related to the study of depth psychology. He's a strong research interest in the impact of technology. His book, Technology, a Symptom and Dream, is an original pioneering work in the interpretation of modern technology from a psychological perspective. His most recent book, Victor Frankenstein, The Monster and the Shadows of Technology, was published earlier this year. So thank you very much, Robert, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you, Fergal, for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. Now, over the years, I've spoken to a broad array of, of, of people on, on, on sustainability. I've spoken to economists and financiers, uh, some bankers, uh, climate scientists, uh, w- wide ranging, uh, uh, but, but never uh, somebody with your background and never somebody from, I guess, the, the world of the psyche and the world of psychology. So could you maybe just give listeners a brief overview of your background and work, Robert? Sure, thank you. Um, of course, I when I finished college, it was to uh, with the intention of becoming a clinical psychologist. So I went to Duquesne University, and in 1972, graduated with uh, 1970 with a PhD in clinical. And 1972 to 1991, I was one of the co-founders of a new and radical program, graduate PhD program in psychology at the University of Dallas. Uh, Worked until, as I said, 1991 there. And then I felt the itch to move on and I was getting tired of Texas and uh, I got this opportunity to come out to California uh, where I was uh, invited to form a PhD program in clinical psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute, uh, freestanding institute, and I retired from there in nineteen no in two thousand fourteen, so nineteen ninety one to two thousand fourteen, uh, and that's sort of my academic background. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, other kinds of positions, both in Europe and and in the United States, visiting professorships. South Africa, different places in Europe, um, and uh, I've, I've really focused in all of my work, I've been interested in the basic question of um, how we have gotten to the point where we have constructed a world uh, that takes into account uh, our attitudes towards nature, our attitudes towards other people, our attitudes towards our own embodiment, uh, our sense of time and space and all of these parameters, and particularly our attitudes about our mortality. What interested me as part of the education that I had is were things always that way, the way we imagine the world now, where we can do these marvelous things with science and technology. I just saw on the inter- internet today that the Voyager 2 probe uh, is now beyond the bubble of the solar wind. It was launched 42 years ago and is taking a photograph of Triton, the moon of Neptune, uh, from something like uh, 3,000 or more miles away incredible what we can do technologically but I think that has come at a cost Um, and what I have wondered about all all along is how did the technological worldview come in how did it what are its origins and that has been my work always looking at how we have gotten to the place where we are now 
particularly as we are facing many crises, which I will get to as we talk. Um, and I've written books about that and lectured about that. Um, so that's been one strand of my work. And that has been fed not only in terms of looking at culture and history. Uh, I'm an avid reader of history uh, and the changing nature of church architecture to show you how our sense of the sacred has changed over time and our sense of uh, how art depicts a changing relationship to uh, how we frame ourselves as part of the world or apart from it. That was the whole issue of my technology book. Um, so I had that strand, but that has always been uh, balanced in a way, and necessarily so, by my clinical practice with patients, because they inform each other, because the way I work in therapy has come out of the tradition of depth psychology, uh, particularly the work of Carl Jung. So that means I deal with unconscious dynamics in human relationships, and in terms of what the patient brings into the therapy room as part of their suffering. Uh, the issue for me in terms of my training and my interest theoretically in origins on a cultural historical level has been to look at the unconscious dynamics that has landed the person where they are, not only in terms of family dynamics and cultural influences, but Jung's notion of the collective archetypal unconscious and his last important work in relationship with quantum physics and uh, Wolfgang Pauli was how at the deepest level of the unconscious, uh, what we experience psychologically is also the way nature is speaking to us. So at the, at the bottom of, of unconscious dynamics from the personal all the way to this deepest level, we are recovering, and that to me has been the important, the important lesson and necessity for depth psychology. We have been recovering how we are a part of nature and not apart from it. So that's been another strand which has supplemented the way I, I describe how we had lost our contact with nature under the worldview of technology. That was the technology book in 1989. And then the third strand is how do we speak in a way that really changes things, transforms things? My training as a, uh, a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist, and even in the years that I've been in therapy myself as a patient, when the sufferings that I have gone through, facts of course matter, but uh, the explanations don't change the heart. What really moves a person when they're suffering is a way of being understood and related to that comes from the heart and not just consciousness or mind. And that's that subtle area I think for me where the arts and the humanities transform us, um, and particularly for me, poetry. So uh, I've been a poet as well and have published poems and a poetry book. So I hope that gives you some sense, some kind of not pigeonholed. Uh, yes, a, a very rich body of work, Robert. and. Um, uh, hopefully we can touch on on some of those areas uh, in the short time we have together. Um, uh, very, very interesting. Um, it brings to mind, uh, you, you mentioned the, the question of the, 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 the technology, the, 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 the prowess, or um, I think it was E.O. Wilson who said, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> <laughs> A wonderful quote. I love it. Yes, yes. And I agree with it. Yes. Well, um, now, um, I, you, you've got a new book out about Frankenstein, a very uh, fascinating book, which I'd like to discuss later. But first, um, I mean, you alluded to this a little bit. I mean, we live in troubled times, m many, many different problems. Um, what's on your mind right now and keeping you awake at night? Uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you one thing. I really do a lot of active imagination. I pay attention to my dreams and I do meditation and I take walks in nature. So I sleep pretty well at night. <laughs> and I think it's because I'm trying to really pay attention at the conscious level to things that I might not be aware of and therefore uh, will come back and haunt me in some way. I'm not saying a lot of dreams do that. But what's on my mind now, or what's in my heart, is uh, the, the increasing sense of urgency of where we are headed insofar as we look at everything in terms of a technological problem and a technological fix. And the crises that we face now by framing, I'm going to use that image like a window, framing the world as if nature was a, uh, for our use and uh, just uh, a resource and doesn't have its own living spirit or its own therapeutic value. Um, that way of framing our relationship to nature has increased the sense of crises that we are feeling today. And I'll give you some examples. In the 80s, when I was at the University of Dallas, um, I discovered not that any of those students ever became my patients, but I would sit a lot in the coffee shop uh, with these students. And in the 80s, uh, during the Reagan era, we, the world was heading for a kind of nuclear Armageddon. Um, somewhere in the middle 80s, the Bulletin of Atomic, Atomic, Atomic Scientist had set the doomsday clock to maybe two minutes to midnight. And then, of course, there were all those films about nuclear Armageddon. And I was sensing and seeing and hearing and feeling with these young people, 19, 20, 21, a real sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair, a sense of um, what future do we have? Um, and of course, that anticipated a lot of the uh, movement towards drugs as ways of kind of trying to deal with one's anxiety, push it away. So that, that concerned me, particularly because I had two young sons at that point. And uh, I began then to look into the question seriously. Uh, how did we create that world? And that led in the 80s to the book, Technology as Symptom and Dream, which has been reprinted uh, six times now. Um, and then uh, a second thing that kind of pushed me in this direction um, was that I began to sense that uh, if we don't really examine how these crises and the, and the threat of nuclear Armageddon is, is, is really possible. And if we only look to political uh, solutions, which I think are important, or economic solutions, and I'll come back to that, but there's something deeper than that, and it, it concerns our psychological attitudes. Well, what, what kind of being are we? What kind of species are we where psychologically we can't even contemplate the destruction, and even today it's worse, uh, not only of our own species, but perhaps large portions of the animal life and the natural life on the planet, and do tremendous damage to the earth. So I began to speak out about that in uh, Dallas, Texas, and I got a real shock, because the more I spoke about that and tried to say to people, you know, we have to really become aware that there is a dangerous psychological attitude at work here. There are, and I tried not to use uh, jargon, but it's hard to get away from unconscious dynamics, things that we rather not look at is another way of looking at the unconscious. The more I began to speak, the more I got into trouble. 
I started to get uh, two types of mail. One type of mail from people in the audience who heard me speak, wasn't email then, was how dare you come in and frighten us and then we go home and, and, and it's not good for our children, which was my point. Well, you can't keep doing that until the bombs go off. Let's take a look at it. And then the second type I got from religious fundamentalist. And I'll never forget I got one piece in the mail that showed interesting, uh, ironic. It was uh, from a religious group. And it shows what they called a nuclear family. You know how we meant that term? Yes. Mother, father, children. And they're walking up a hill towards a huge sun, what looks like a huge sunrise, but it's the mushroom cloud. And the sense was, we do not have to worry because this is all in God's design. And I said, no, Robert, You've got to do something, whatever it is that you can do to try and make people aware that we are living in dangerous times. And what's on my mind now is uh, in the last 30 years, the last 40 years almost, the situation has become more dire. Um, we see it in our politics, our economics, and the melting polar ice, and the devastation of large numbers of uh, the Amazon rainforest. Um, so that led to trying to, to speak to a larger audience and hence working on the Frankenstein book. But that's basically where I am now at this point. Um, yeah. No, um, that's very interesting. And, and you talk about this uh, looking deeper and understanding, you know, our attitudes and so forth. What, what would you say, uh, a depth psychology perspective, you know, what does that offer on, on the environmental problems we're facing at the moment? Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, let me say that um, when I use the word depth psychology, I'm talking about the tradition that begins with Freud, with the publication of his book in 1900, The Interpretation of Dreams. I'll come back to that in a minute. But... I was also trained very rigorously, not only in the Freudian, but in the tradition of Carl Jung, who broke with Freud. And of course, all of the particular offshoots of each of them. So depth psychology, very uh, put in a very uh, direct way, is the kind of psychology that deals with the unconscious motivating factors in human life, those parts of ourselves that lead to actions and behaviors of which we are not aware. Um, and the most important way in which we keep at bay those aspects of ourselves that we would find upsetting or troubling or not at all favorable to the image that we want to have of ourselves more consciously that those aspects of ourselves that in Jungian terms are shadow, um, darker sides. Um, you want a literary example, just at the time when depth psychology is beginning with Freud, Robert Louis Stevenson writes Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll is an upstanding man, doesn't believe that there is this kind of barbarous other side of him, and of course uh, that side gets acted out. So what, what depth psychology then really deals with is the way in which what we don't like in ourselves, we pretend we don't have, we split it off, we deny it, and then we let other people carry it. So there is the sense in which what is most difficult for a person is to face their own otherness, those not so light and bright and happy parts of ourselves, but the darker sides that kind of erupt now and then and surprise us. You know, you're, you're having a good day and all of a sudden you erupt in a kind of uh, angry explosion. And you say, where did that come from? Um, or you, the other way in which those, aspects of ourself that really carry the otherness in us that we then ask other people to carry, 
they, they really come out as symptoms. And that was the genius and the importance and still is the necessity for a depth psychological point of view to the cultural dream that we're living today, that cultural dream that we use to frame the world as a technological uh, problem, the technological solutions, that that way of framing the world will express itself symptomatically. So I began to really see in my patients that, for example, if they come in, and I, I dealt a lot with, because you get a certain kind of reputation in, in Dallas, I really liked working with people who uh, were depressed, uh, partly because I had to work with that in my own life, uh, and did, and have, and still do. Um, but I began to see that if you stay with the depression and you follow the symptom, that's where you begin, that's where you start, that's what you track. I began to see that in a symptom like depression or eating disorder or whatever the case may be, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive, some more difficult to deal with than others, to be sure. I began to understand that the symptom holds attention between something that is vital to a person's life to remember, but is too painful, uh, too painful to do so, and is therefore forgotten. So it's a tension between remembering something that is too vital to forget. Now it's easy to say that. That's a hard one insight in my own work and in working with patients for 50 years now, or nearly 50 years. It's easy to say that, but it's a hard one insight, and it's a hard one thing to do, to really take a look, a hard look at yourself. It's so much easier to put it out there on someone else, whether it is Jews doing that to Arabs, or whether it is Protestants and Islands doing that to Catholics, or whether it is the white power structure in, in America and in Western uh, Europe putting it on to uh, blacks or women or other exiled groups, or whether it is uh, race-related uh, or economically related. I mean, I'll give an example, and I'm not speaking politically here. I'm speaking as a psychologist. Our own current political system would build a wall against those so-called rapists, murderers, uh, thieves, killers who would come up from South America. That's a clear political way, uh, that's a clear way in which the psychological unconscious works out itself in the political realm. So that's another contribution to really stay with the symptom in my private work with patients and to look at a contemporary crisis also as a symptom and wonder what is being exiled, what is being denied, what is not being heard, what is being made into the other who is a devil, a demon, a monster, however you want to say it. And then the third contribution of depth psychology, maybe the most important, is the way or the path or the royal road to unconscious dynamics is through the dream. And if I may, I don't want to take off too big a bite. Well, first of all, um, 1900, uh, Freud publishes, well, he actually finished it, sent it to his published in 1899, but the publication date is 1900. His work that uh, inaugurates step psychology, it's called The Interpretation of Dreams. But <laughs> this, is, this is really so important. The word for dream in German, because Freud wrote in German, was is Traum, T-R-A-U-M. So when I realized that and how dreams are really important for getting us in touch with the Mr. Hyde, if I can use that image, the Mr. Hyde in ourselves, um, the dream is important to get us to face that or to face what we deny and then we, we meet as a monster in so many different forms. 
that I alluded to before, that the dream is an important way of knowing and being, that in the scientific technological way of framing the world as something that can be measured and counted and quantified, um, that that dream seems to not matter. And in fact, we don't pay attention to our dreams because we live in a, a culture that is so fact-minded, so much believes in measurement and so much believes in rationality that we have become irrational in our unconscious life. Really very, very dangerously unrational with the technological power we have. The quote you said from E.O. Wilson, how did it go? We are uh, uh, primitive in our emotions, medieval in our institutions, yeah, medieval institutions and godlike technology. Godlike, yeah. And that's what I wanted to deal with, the godlike danger. That's what the Frankenstein book was about. So dreams. So dreams then are a way to get in touch with that. And dream in German is trauma. And so I began to really see that what is a trauma is what brings us to our knees, huh? What, whatever that suffering is, it shocks us, it stops us in our tracks, and it can kill us, trauma. And when we look at a dream in that way, then every night when we go to sleep, the ego-conscious, overly rationalistic mind in our technological worldview is experiencing a trauma. And a trauma is important because it's awakening us, it's waking us up to what we refuse to see in ourselves and ask others as victims, or not as victims, but as, as the cause of our suffering to carry. So it's important then to, to begin to look at the dream as a way of really being traumatized so that when you wake up, you have an opportunity, and the opportunity might be phrased as, what am I denying in myself? Maybe it's something, you know, at the simplest level of things are not going right between me and my spouse, and we are headed for some kind of breakup or uh, disaster, and, but the dream might present that in a different light in which you see yourself in ways that you would prefer not to see yourself in relation to, uh, to, to the feminine, to your wife, to your partner. If it's not, uh, uh, you know, if, it, if it's more of a relationship between two same-sex people or not. Relationships are the crucible where we begin to, uh, where we have the opportunity to be irritated into who we truly are meant to become. I use that image, irritated, because you know how a, 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 a pearl is formed by an oyster through the imitation of the sand? Yes, yes. Well, that's what we do to each other. And if we can stand it, the other is like the face that we refuse to see in ourselves. We can, we can no more see the other in ourselves than we can see our own face. We need mirrors, and the other person is a mirror to reflect back to us what we'd rather not see in ourselves. But that is hard work. That's why when I teach this to my clinical students and I say how difficult it is, um, I said most of the time you look at the divorce rate in our country, and I'm not criticizing at all. I'm only saying, and I'm... Um, best example of how I, my own unconscious shadow has to be faced over and over again. Um, so we need the dream. And in, in the case that I describe of relationships, oftentimes it, it means that uh, the law comes in. And uh, sometimes that's necessary. I certainly had patients where that was the best result, but you had at first not just a knee-jerk reaction, you had to work on what were you asking of the other that you couldn't face in yourself? What did you need the other to be for you? And vice versa. So to draw a line onto this, two lines. One, think of the dream as a nightly 
traumatic event, but change the word a bit. Think of the dream as a nightly humiliation of our ego-conscious, rational minds. Um, humiliation. If you take out, if you look at the the root of that word, it's related to uh, hummus, not the food we eat, or H-U-M-U-S. It means the soil. So the dreams bring us back to the deepest level of the psyche where our consciousness has its deepest roots. And when we sever those roots, our consciousness becomes and can become very disruptive. So that's what depth psychology really wanted to bring back. Near the middle of his life, Jung said he wasn't sure. He said this might take four or five hundred years. It's a hypothesis that Society is not ready, maybe, to accept. Um, and yet, if we don't make it, if we don't make the effort, we will destroy ourselves. I know that sounds, but I don't think we can deny the evidence. We can't. It's not sustainable to keep doing the same things we're doing. We have to change how we understand who we are, not as apart from nature, but as part of nature. And that's humbling. And so that word humility, hummus, soil, when we begin to see ourselves, that we belong to nature, that we have to have respect for uh, all of the living spirit and presence of nature, when we begin to, to see that and that we belong to something larger than ourselves, then what's also present in the psyche is a sense that we need a boundary. We're not... We can't make our own boundaries, and that has always gone by the name of the sacred. I don't mean organized religion. When I speak as a depth psychologist, I mean that which is larger than us. The personal level, it's to be in service to the common good, which today in our culture, rife with greed, uh, there's an upsurge of narcissism. Me first. What can I get out of it? How much money? What happened to the common good? What happened to the sense that when my neighbor suffers, I suffer? When when animals are being destroyed, like polar bears in the Antarctic in the Arctic region, where I've been to, as well as in the Antarctic, where they can't find enough ice to float and get their food and they sink and they drown. Or when I see a seal on the beach when I lived in California that has been cut to pieces by the blade of a boat, but it's still not dead and you look in its eye, how can you not feel some kind of empathy? But you won't feel that if you think we're above nature, apart from it. We've lost that sense of we are part of something larger than ourselves. So that's what depth psychology, I think, can can give to us. And the last bit that I would say is once I began to see that the personal dream is is a uh, trauma and trauma is a dream, uh, I remembered that I titled my first book, Technology, a Symptom in Dream. We are living within the dream of a technological worldview, and that's what the Frankenstein book is about. Uh, and we are living in a trauma. We are living in traumatic times. We are living within a dream that is leading to multiple disasters, to breakdowns politically, economically, socially, environmentally, medically. We are living in that kind of world. And unless we begin to face um, how we are living within that dream and wake up, we're going to live in continuous crisis, in continuous traumas. You've covered a lot of ground there, Robert, and you've spent, as you said, almost 50 years in dealing with individuals uh, and their personal psychological healing and therapy of one kind or another. Um, what you're talking about is also a cultural phenomenon. You're talking about uh, greed and, 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 and uh, me first and so forth. We're familiar, I guess, with the idea of, of some kind of individual psychological therapy and so forth. 
can you envisage something similar for an entire culture or a civilization? How does that happen? You know, that, that's a key question, uh, I think, behind my work and one that I, I, I've been dealing with my whole life. But starting out with my concern with uh, technology as a dream and how the world got to be the way it is, my work has always been focused on culture. Uh, and I have the experience of dealing with individual patients. But the question, as you posed it, has been my continuing question. How do you do a therapy of culture? How do you do a therapy for a paradigm that rules the world? Uh, that's a whole different ballgame. And what makes it, um, what makes it uh, difficult when I think about the question is if I look back on my 50 years as a psychotherapist, I know what I've gotten out of all the years I've spent in analysis, but how many people can afford that? How many people can afford that? Not just uh, financially, but emotionally and, and spiritually. Um, I began to see that we have to find another way to awaken the culture. And that's why I write books and give talks is to try and point out, look, can you think that the way we are now doesn't have to be that way. It wasn't always that way. And if we begin to realize that we have created this world, which I trace back to the 15th century in my technology book, we can change that. So that's what I try to bring. But I know that in making the talks and writing these books, we need more. And the other thing that we need is we have to look at our educational system. We have to look at does our educational system serve only the technological, conscious, rational worldview? Does our educational system provide for little children not to be taught, wrote with their little five, six-year-old bodies crammed into chairs, but taught to explore and to feel their bodies in contact with the natural world, to build on with what every small child, until they get sometimes corrupted by an education that doesn't keep them in touch with their instincts and with the love of nature and the wonders and the beauty of nature, it's their birthright. I have a grandson who will be seven, and I used to love to take walks with him when he was two, three, even four. When he was very young, and you see this in a lot of kids, the world outside was a wonder. And to take a walk with a two-year-old is to wander in wonder. And yet they don't have the capacity to step back so much yet and think about it. What they do is they point. And the pointing finger for me is a gesture which points to, points to which shows that our bodies are made of the same stuff of the world. And between the body, our bodies, our sensual bodies and the sensuous world, there is a kind of erotic bond, a love affair, which the pointing finger points to, uh, uh, indicates. And you take a walk, as I did with him, and say, Grandpa, I need that. I did that last time, uh, three years ago, when I was walking with him. I came back to the house carrying branches and twigs and trees because he said, Grandpa, I need that. I need that. That matters to me. And I got back to the house and said, Jonah, where should we put it? He said, I don't need that. But in the moment, he did, you know, because it appealed to him. It was a wonder. So that was one thing with, with him. And look at the world we live in now, the digital world. Here's a perfect example. I am glad for the technology. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not saying smash the machines. We cannot disinvent what we know. We cannot protect ourselves from atomic Armageddon by disinventing the knowledge we have to make the bombs that we dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We can't disinvent that. We have to find a way how to live with that by asking these questions. Who was it that gave us this power? What in our own psyche wants this and now leads us to destruction? And the same thing with the digital world. I'm glad we have it. We couldn't do this, Virgo. 
We couldn't talk like this. But I remember when I did Skype with my grandson, video Skype, when he was still about two. His name is Jonah. He was eating uh, a cookie or something. And I said to him, oh, Jonah, that cookie looks really good. And he said to me, Grandpa, do you want a bite? And I said, okay. And he went to the screen. These small moments are so important to pay attention to. He put it to the screen and he pulled back his hand and you could see on his face as if he was a dawning philosopher, a puzzlement. There's no bite marks there. And he just went off to try and play again. But those are the kinds of issues that I want us to think about. Look at the wonderful value of the digital world, but at what price? We cannot touch each other. We cannot hug each other. We cannot uh, express our emotions in a bodily way, you know, with, with a touch of the cheek. I'm not saying that we should not use this technology, but we should use it aware of how it leaves something very human about us, the intimate contact between friends, the shake of a hand, the, the French kiss on two cheeks, which I get into being in France here. Um, we can't do that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't engage with this technology. It means let's not forget what we're leaving behind. Let's use this with awareness. And that today for me is, 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 is the issue that I think I want to deal with. Um, you, you, you talk about technology. Um, you talk about technological society, um, technological worldview. Uh, technology has been an important theme in your writings for many decades, as you say that your your book and uh, and I was going to ask technology symptom and dream. You talked mm. about the the dream aspect. Um, you know uh, what what is it that interests you about technology? And and not to go into necessarily uh, too much about, but what's the difference between I guess science and technology? Because I, I I'm more familiar, I guess, with people who want a scientific worldview and a scientism and scientific, you know, uh, culture. Um, you you talk a lot about technology, um, so I, I'm just interested. What would be interested in knowing what is it that interests you about, about technology, and 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 to what degree you think it's implicit or it has it is a, it has a role to play in, in in the environmental crisis we're now facing. A few questions there tied together, Robert. Yeah, there, there's a lot to tie together in that. Um, well, first of all, uh, again, I would repeat that uh, it, it would be foolish to think that we could live in a non-technological world. That's not possible. That's the Luddite 19th century position, smash the machines. That's not what I advocate. What I advocate is that how technology frames the world in a certain way that leaves out a lot of the qualities that make us most human. Uh and, and the examples that I gave about the digital world would be uh, one example that I want to repeat here. But in, in, a, in a fundamental sense, what I try to bring to the technological worldview is that whole psychological depth dimension, which has to do with the fundamental question of who are we when we take up the idea that nature uh, is something that not only we can explore, but also dominate and, and exploit. Um, and when you have that attitude towards nature uh, as something that is no longer alive, as recently as uh, the Renaissance four or 500 years ago, we would speak very comfortably about the anima mundi, the spirit of the world, the living spirit of nature. And again, I think, example about children, they experience that. Well, nature now is a dead object for us. And what I'm trying to really bring back is the fundamental question. Um, if we frame the world in that way, we look at the consequences and we look at the ecological crises we are facing today. Um, I saw a map the other day that 
we're scientists and we need science. We need science to tell us, hey, look, this is a problem that we have now because the melting polar ice caps are melting faster than we thought. And by 2050, large areas of uh, coastal cities will be underwater. And they had maps and there are large commercial centers. Or look at the air quality of what's going on in, in Mumbai and in India. Uh, there was some news about that today, but it's also affecting the storms and the fires in California. That's a wake-up call. That's nature in its symptomatic expression asking us to remember what we have forgotten. And the fundamental lesson for me is to just bring that in so that if we can remember that we belong to nature, that we come out of nature, that we are part of nature, just in our very flesh, our very bodies, something supreme in a way about nature because, you know, we, we don't, we, we die. Animals perish. Now, there is some awareness, I think, of animals that they die, but the fact that we die shows that we are nature with some sense of how important and different we are in that whole scheme of the evolution of nature. Some, uh, John Archibald Wheeler, physicist, uh, coined the phrase the Leibniz logic loop, and he says, human consciousness is the way that nature is coming to know itself. But we've broken our bonds with nature in the technological worldview, which is what I traced out in the technology book, and which I revisit for a larger audience in the Frankenstein book. We've broken our ties with nature. And when we've done that, we see the crisis we're facing, the flooding of cities, the fires in California, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to remember what we have forgotten and how do we get back to a more humble attitude rather than acting as if we are gods because our technological powers give us the illusion that we are godlike, and we do have some godlike powers. It is very fascinating. I mean, given all the distance between us, we're still talking. That to me is amazing. The the, the roots of this, you you spend uh, fascinating uh, analysis of the roots of this maybe dislocation, you know, this break and this rupture with with nature. Um, but um, more recently, you've written about Frankenstein. And um, what is it that interests you about the Frankenstein story? Okay, that's, that's very much to the point. If I can just get back for a moment to your first question. I think then what I'm trying to add as a depth psychology to my fascination with technology is depth psychology helps us remember how we once were part of nature. You just look at history. And if we can remember what we have forgotten, we can imagine our future in a different way. So that's an important step. And working with dreams, I work with a dream group online, uh, dreams and ecological crises. And so we're trying to really explore how dreams might inform us about things that we would rather not face. So this question has been with me. And when I published the technology book in 1989, I really thought maybe things can make a difference, maybe. But I think the situation has got more dire. Should I give up? No, no. I see young people today. They are coming in from the margins because the center, the power structures are not listening to what is happening. Our politics is breaking down. Our economics are breaking down. Nature is breaking down. But I see that every breakdown is the possibility for a breakthrough for something new. And all of that is coming from the margins, which is why I dedicated my book, The Frankenstein Book, to those who are still in the margins, whose voices are still silent, whose stories are still untold. And I have hope that things like the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, young high school students against gun violence and these students like Goethe Thunberg, who is not just her, but all of the students who are waking up that there is an ecological crisis, 
I just saw on the internet today that Italy is instituting now, thanks be to God <laughs> or the gods, they're now going to put courses on ecological issues in the curriculum for young students in school. So we need education. We also have to bring back the humanities in our educational system. It's not just about teaching kids to pass tests because the great myths, the great dramas, films, they touch the depths before they stir. They touch the depths of soul before they stir the reasons of mind. We're moved, we're changed by Shakespeare, by poets. So we have to change our educational system. And what I try to do in the Frankenstein book was to take Mary's story, Shelley's story, after 200 years, it is still with us. Last year was the 200th anniversary of its publication. It has been reprinted, shown into movies. It has had wider circulation, second to only the Bible. So there's something going on in Mary Shelley's story when you think it was written by a 19-year-old young woman. And what I try to do is to frame the story that I've been telling today, but by going through the story of Victor Frankenstein. And the key themes in that book, one, Victor Frankenstein is horrified by the death of his mother, and he commits himself to overcoming death. And in that process, he begins to see himself as a new god of creation. That's early on in technology. And we begin to believe that our technological powers are godlike. So the seeds are already planted there. But because he creates by, in his mind and his mind alone, out of the roots of his conscious knowledge, and leaves the feminine, the woman, be behind, aside, cast off, and who suffers as a consequence of all of his pride and hubris as being a god who could create life and erase death from life. It's the women who die in the novel. His bride-to-be, following his mother, his young brother, their housemaid. His father dies of grief. So the death that he would deny comes back to haunt him because whether we like it or not, to be a human being embodied in this world means that we owe life for death. So how do we live our life in the space between being born and dying. Those are the tensions. And life is to, to create a life that could serve something more than our own ego needs. So he does that. And because he believes he's a God, doesn't take responsibility for what he has made, he creates a monster and he's horrified. And the monster brings all of the things that Victor denies in himself. And so I try to tell Mary Shelley's story, retell it from the point of view of the monster. And it's all written for a larger audience. The format is one of questions. Each of the eight questions has a piece in Mary Shelley's book that starts it off. And then I raise a question, is like question one, is Mary Shelley's story a prophecy of the dangers of acting as if we are gods? Question two, is Mary Shelley's story a prophecy of the dying of nature? Because where does the novel end? In the Arctic where the monster uh, says he will set himself on fire so that no other person will ever see the terrific, monstrous outcome of his maker's dream to be a new god. Well, I can't help connecting that with the Arctic is burning and melting. So is the Antarctic. The fires around the world, the heating up of the planet. So for each of the questions, I tie it to Mary Shelley's novel, and then I show how it's still lingering today, telling the story from the point of view of the monster. He carries the prophetic aspects that we witness today as symptoms, ecologically, uh, economically, uh, politically, etc. cetera, uh, in terms of how we use our technology forgetfully. So I have a whole chapter on digital world material. And that's what I'm trying to do. But as I was finishing the book, my wife said, you know, Robert, that's pretty bleak. She's, she said, aren't there seeds of hope? 
And I went back and I reread the story. I've been reading Mary Shelley's story for 20 years now. And the last two questions are seeds of hope. First of all, uh, the book has a lot to do with the importance of dreams. Secondly, the monster, what we call the monster, who has more ethics than his maker, Victor Frankenstein. He's educated by nature. Um, and he faces his maker with a fundamental question, which is a question to us. When we look at the melting polar ice, that symptomatically is saying to us, who is the monster? So there is this new ethics about taking responsibility for our actions, the importance of the dream, and uh, a new ethics being formed when you take responsibility because Victor Frankenstein denies responsibility for his actions and their consequences. And then most importantly, I think one of the seeds of hope in Mary Shelley's story, and I didn't see this until I went back after my wife said, read it again. And it's really a love story. And there's very few people who have said Victor Frankenstein's story, Victor Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's story is a love story. But when you look at it from the point of view of the monster, he begs his maker for one thing and one thing only, make a mate for me who would not be horrified at my disfigurement. And I promise I will go to the ends of the earth, which in those days was Scotland, <laughs> um, and never tempt uh, or, uh, or terrify humanity. And Victor Frankenstein reluctantly agrees but then, as he is making the mate, and there's a seed of hope for the monster that maybe he wouldn't be so alone. Because the other theme in that story is how difficult, perhaps the most difficult thing of all for a human being is loneliness. Not to belong to a community, not to belong to a family, not to belong to a tradition, not to have a mate, a lover, not to have family and friends. And so he has hope. But then Victor Frankenstein, as the moon shines in the window and he sees what he is doing again, he tears the mate to pieces and throws her into the deep, dark waters of a Scottish lake. And then the story takes its turn of destruction. But it is the monster who knows that if he has someone that he can love and loves him, there would be no cause for him to destroy so I think love is a seed of hope when we look at it from the monster's point of view, when love is not corrupted by power. Victor sa sacrifices his bride-to-be, Elizabeth Lavenza. He sacrifices her to his work. He sacrifices her to his image of how he is the new creator God. So, you know, in therapy, individually, and living within the cultural dream, the hardest thing I think for human beings to learn is how to love in humility and seeing the other for who they are rather than who we need them to be. And that's where the poets come in for me. One of my favorite poets is Raina Maria Rilke, who says, love is the most difficult work of all, apart from which everything else that we do in life is but a preparation. So easy to say, hard to do, but if we don't, then we have to begin to feel some sorrow at what we have done with this marvelous gift of creation that has been given to us. Uh, and so I work a lot with grief as, as having a potential to awaken us to, through sorrow, to see that uh, we, we have to change our attitudes and become more humble about who we are. Well, what's next for you now, Robert? I have the sense that as imperfect as it may be, uh, I've tried to live my life in terms of what has called me into, my, into what I'm supposed to do. And so now, uh, at, you know, as I'm heading toward my 80s, upper 70s, um, I look back and I realize that it's, it's important for me to keep doing what, what I can.
can do with the energy that I still have. And here's the value of technology. I don't have to get on a plane and go anywhere. We can have this conversation. Maybe it touches more people than it would in terms of an article I write. But I'm going to keep doing that, maybe in a different way. But I also have to acknowledge and, and give way to what's happening now. And I have tremendous hope in what's coming in from the margins, like uh, the young people speaking up against gun violence, what I said before, Black Lives Matter, all from the margins. And they're speaking to the power structure, and the power structure is resisting. I want to support as much as I can that hope. I want to acknowledge that uh, it's time for those who are coming now to pick up what what I, I, I like to think of myself as a fossil now, you know, because the fossil carries that, you know, we're, we're, we're killing the, 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 the earth and nature with fossil fuels, but fossils are also the remains the rich remains of those who have gone before. They, they have another kind of value. So whatever it is that I have been able to do uh, with the writings, with the books, with the lectures, um, I want to leave that behind for those coming after me to take it up and use it whatever way they seem fit. Um, they'll have new creative ways to do it. Uh, all I know is what I learned when I went to the DV, uh, to, to the Antarctic in 2009. Um, I, I had a dream, and uh, the dream reminded me of a dream that I had 35 years old, uh, earlier. And I said to my wife, I got to go to the Antarctic now. She, she said, fine. I said, it's going to cost money. She said, fine. So... Uh, little piece of synchronicity happened. I was getting social security. And when I went to the office expecting bureaucracy, this wonderful lady told me that they owed me back money. And I said, okay, I thought it would be a couple of hundred bucks. She said, we owe you $24,500. To this day, I don't know why I got that. But I got on my knees, I said, I need 25,000. That's, can you give me 500 more? Make a long story short, my wife and I went there and in those crystal cathedrals of life, ice, one of the last unspoiled places in the world, I don't know if the treaties that were signed in the early 20th century are going to hold because they're finding lots of resources now. I made a DVD when I came back. It's called Antarctica and the Journeys in the Outer World. And what it ends with is this, I took 500 photos and the DVD has 36 images of voiceover and a narrative thread and music to accompany the images. And it ends with an image. And I phrase it this way, and this is my best answer to your question. Um, I said, is the melting polar ice a political issue? Yes. It is an economic issue. Yes. It is a scientific issue. Yes. Is it a technological issue? Yes. But we cannot solve the problems at the same level that created them. And while we need these solutions, economic, political, scientific, we have to look at something deeper. We have to look at the psychological issues. It is also a psychological problem playing as if we are gods and we're flawed gods. We're flawed gods. And so that's what I want to awaken people to. And I want to have hope. Uh, and I want to see that, uh, that hope is being realized in these movements from the margins that we see. But it's time for the, for the next generation to come up and take it up and, and, with their passion and their enthusiasm, they're going to take up and take the work of people like myself and you and others who have been doing work to raise issues about sustainability. Let's give it to them as a gift to do with as they wish. 
a gift, no strings attached. Only saying this is the best we could do with what we had while we had it. That's a great vision, Robert. And uh, I want to thank you for your time today and, and for talking to, to us and sharing your your lifelong research and, and passion and really for bearing witness, which I think is something that's at the heart of your work. And I wish you the very best with your ongoing work and, and bearing witness. Thank you very, very much, Fergal. And again, my, my thanks to you and to the opportunity that you gave to me uh, once more to speak about these issues. Uh, and I hope our paths cross again. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.